chapter 5. That's where we'll be for the majority of this morning service. I want to take this time to, to just extend my welcome to everyone who's here, not only to our, our members, but to the visitors as well. It's a, it's a joy. I know I speak for all of us. It's a joy to have you with us. And if you would, stick around so we can get to, get to meet with you and learn more about you. Have you guys ever had a time where you, you've read through what God wanted, his rules, his expectations, and you've thought, that doesn't make any sense. Why would he want me to do that? Or have you, looked at, have you ever looked at him and felt disgruntled because what he wanted wasn't what you wanted? Or maybe, maybe look at it this way. Have you ever gotten your hopes up for something? You've, you've planned for something. You've been so excited by, by this, this vacation or this, this book that you're about to read. And yet you get there to the vacation, or you get the book, and you're utterly disappointed. I know, I know I've had those, those questions and those feelings, and I know someone else who's had them too. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we read the story of Naaman. And Naaman fulfills all of those questions, all of those feelings. So will you follow with me in 2 Kings chapter 5? Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with him, the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, you, when this letter reaches you know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. Naaman is a very intriguing character. I don't know if you caught all the things that I just read, but, and we'll be going through it, but he is a very special guy. And he shows us something very important throughout his entire story. You see, Naaman shows us the requirements for conversion. Maybe not the conversion in the sense of becoming a Christian or putting on Christ, but he shows us the conversion of change and how conversion requires change in yourself and in ourselves. And I want to look at this today. I want to examine what exactly the requirements of conversion are. We see Naaman as a special character is in charge of a great many things. He's the commander of the Syrian army. And if you, if you recall with me, Syria was... The kingdom above Israel, it was to the north of Israel, and it was a very powerful kingdom at this time. And Naaman was just about as in charge of it as you could be, besides being the king. Think of, in our world today, think of a four-star general or a joint chief of staff having all that power over where the army goes, who they fight, and what they do for the country. That's, that's pretty much what Naaman is. That's the power that Naaman has. But I want to take a little step aside real quick. In verse 1, I noticed something intriguing, something very special about Naaman and about Syria. You see, Naaman and Syria were given favor by God. They were blessed by God. And it says so. It says, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. So Naaman had all this power. Syria was all-powerful. 
because of God, because God was granting them their victory. Now, if we look at this and we understand this right, if God's giving victory to Syria, especially over Israel, it kind of sheds a light on the kingdom of Israel, don't you think? It sheds a light of, of how Israel was at this time. And, in my, and what I get from this is that they weren't very good. And God was allowing Syria to punish them. He was lifting Syria up to punish Israel. Now let's get back to Naaman. Naaman was not only powerful militarily in his, in his raids against Israel and against the other kingdoms of the land, but his character was just as strong as his position of power. We can look through everything that he's called. He's, he's called a man of valor, a mighty man of valor. Uh, valor is to be brave, is to show true braveness in the face of adversity. It's to step out in the front of the line and fight in front of all the rest of your soldiers, to be that example to the ones around you. This is who the man Naaman was. Naaman wasn't this, this wicked leader of Syria. He was a good guy. There's nothing that we read about him being this wicked, despicable guy. He was simply a good man. We can see everything Naaman's been blessed with. We can see all the different ways that God has lifted him up, that God has given him favor. But then we get a little caveat to Naaman at the end of verse 1. But Naaman was a leper. You see, Naaman had all this power, all this favor, yet he was leprous. And leprosy is a disease that is incurable. And not only is it incurable, but it's highly contagious. And so we can imagine that Naaman, once he contracted this leprosy, had to be isolated from those around him because they would have been afraid for this disease to be spread. And if he was isolated from those around him, that means his relationships that he once had were probably not as strong anymore, or they were lacking something. If we look at this, he, he had a wife. And once he had leprosy, well, we can imagine that he wasn't as close to his wife anymore, that he had to be isolated from her. Naaman's disease causes a very severe problem in his life. It causes him to be isolated. It causes him to worry about his future, about his health, about his well-being. Naaman's problem causes him to do something. And we can see that what Naaman does is the first step to conversion. As Naaman looks for something, as he looks for an answer, it shows us that conversion requires seeking. That we must seek out the answers for what we are looking for, 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 the, for the problems we have, the questions we have. Look with me in verses 2 through 3, and we can see just the extent of where Naaman's seeking leads him. In verses 2, now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He could cure him of his leprosy. So here, in one of the most fascinating parts of this story, we have a little Israelite slave girl that Naaman had carried off on one of his raids and put her under the service of his wife. And here we have her turning around and saying, well, if only Naaman was in Samaria, because if he was there, my prophet could heal him. My prophet could cure him of his leprosy. We don't see any animosity from this Israelite girl towards her master. She is, she is purely kind to her master, looking out for his health, looking out for him, 
When in, in most cases, if, if we were put in this situation, we'd be like, well, he's, he's the master. He carried me off away from my home. I don't really want anything to do with him or, or helping him to get better. And yet we see this little Israelite girl do that in her own way. She provides an answer for Naaman's seeking. Now let's look a little more closely at what this Israelite slave girl says. She says, would that my Lord were in the, with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. I, w- I want to look at something. This, this girl says Elisha, the prophet at the time, would cure Naaman of his leprosy. Do you know that that had never been done before? That, uh, that Elisha himself had never cured anyone of leprosy before? And this little girl, she decides, well, he can do it. He can save my master. This girl had so much faith in what Elisha could do that she told Naaman of something that he had never done before, that she told Naaman of an answer that had never been done before. And Naaman listened to her. Could you imagine this? If if you were one of the most powerful men in the country and someone well below your, your status, your class in the country said, well, I've got an answer for you, and you just have to travel all this way to, to Samaria. You just have to go into a different kingdom where they don't like you as much. And someone can do something for you that has never been done. But there's your answer. Would you, would you jump at that opportunity? Would you say, that sounds so valu- viable, I'm going to do that? Naaman did. Naaman immediately hears this and takes it straight to his king. He hears what this little slave girl says and goes to the one guy above him. And he he ends his his presentation of what what he has to do by pointing out, well, this is what that little slave girl told me, that Israelite girl told me. And the the king listens to him. The king not only listens to Naaman's request, but sends him on his way. Naaman is so willing to seek out a cure for his leprosy. He's so willing to seek that he listens to a little slave girl to follow his whims. This king not only provides a letter for Naaman, a letter saying to the Israelite king, which would have been Jehoram at this time, that says, hey, I'm sending you my my commander, the guy who's been a thorn in your side for a long time. I need you to cure him. Cure him of his leprosy. Not only does the king send him this letter of command, but he sends with Naaman an immense value of riches, an immense fortune. We can look at the, the numbers here, but, but the rough estimate, if we look at the silver, is about 750 pounds of silver is sent with Naaman at this time. On top of that, you have 6,000 pieces of gold and 10 changes of fine clothing. Whoever was going to receive this fortune was pretty much set for the rest of their days. I want to I examine something in this passage. There's leaps of faith taken throughout this passage by every single person that we see. The little Israelite girl had a leap of faith in what Elisha could do. Naaman had a leap of faith in what this little girl said to him. And the king had a leap of faith in his commander, that what he was following, what he was seeking, was going to help him out. All of this happens, all of this comes to fruition Because Naaman is seeking a change in his life. He's dissatisfied with how his life has been going. And he wants a change. He seeks a change. And because of the seeking, he does travel all the way to Samaria. All the way to the kingdom of Israel to see Jehoram. 
Look with me in verses 6 and 7. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read this letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive, that this man, only, that this man sends words to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. I want us to take a part in, in standing in Naaman's shoes right now. You believe this little girl. You get your king to help you get to Samaria. And not only get to Samaria, but bring an entourage with you and a fortune with you. And finally, you get to the king of Israel. You're all excited because, well, I'm here. I'm going to get cured. And the king of Israel is so upset by this demand. He, he doesn't think it can be done that he visibly, in front of you, rips his clothes and, and laments to the advisors around you. He laments the hopelessness of what you're seeking. Could you imagine how Naaman was feeling at this time? That he had come all this way and the king of Israel doesn't even think this can be done. Yet we don't see a reaction out of Naaman. We don't read of, of Naaman getting visibly upset and, and crying out to this king saying, well, I was told to come here, so you should do this. No, we, we, we really only read of, of the king's reaction and not Naaman's himself. In my mind, I can see Naaman just, just sort of standing there while the king does his own little thing, while he's crying out, just Naaman standing there waiting for an answer that he hasn't really gotten yet. And then an answer does come to Jehoram for Naaman. You see, in verse 8, Elisha the prophet calls to Jehoram. He says, you know what? Send Naaman my way so I can show him that there is a true prophet in Israel. Naaman wanted to help, or Elisha wanted to help Naaman because he wanted to prove to him that there was a true prophet, that there was one true God. And so he sins for him. And because Naaman is still seeking that change, he's still seeking a way to fix his life, he goes to Elisha. Now, now imagine this. Naaman and his whole entire entourage leaves this huge palace and makes their way to what I would assume, what I visualize as a little house, a little house in the middle of the city where you see this whole entourage of, of power and wealth, and they're knocking on one man's door. Naaman reaches Elisha's house, and he goes to Elisha's house because he's seeking that change in his life. He's seeking for an answer for his pain. Likewise, we seek our own answers, whether it's for our own healing or our own dissatisfaction with areas in our life. If we're dissatisfied with our job, don't we look for ways to make that job better? Don't we look for ways to make that job more worthwhile? Whether that's a promotion or finding new ways to excite that job by, by becoming friends with more people. Or if you're in school, what if, what if we're looking around and saying, you know, school is, school is kind of boring. What do we do to make it better? Well, we look for activities. We look for sports, for clubs, for bands. Just ways to make that high school or middle school time a little more enjoyable. When we have dissatisfaction in our spiritual lives, we look for answers. We look for help. We strive to draw closer to God, whether that's with, with, with uh, us focusing more on our prayers, focusing more on our studies, focusing more on, on our Christian family and drawing closer to them. We look for ways to grow. Look for answers 
to help our dissatisfaction, just like Naaman did. Just like we can see Naaman is seeking answers for his dissatisfaction. We do the same thing. Now we, we continue into the story of Naaman, and we can see something fascinating happen. In verses 10 through 13, Naaman's seeking hits a brick wall. Verse 10, And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. You see, Naaman, his seeking just stops. He gets an answer and he, he doesn't want to do it. And thus we can see the second requirement of conversion. Conversion requires surrender. So Naaman reaches Elisha's door. This powerful man of Syria reaches the prophet's door. And Elisha doesn't even come out to him. No, he, he doesn't come down to meet Naaman. And so I just want to look at this, that, that if you're Naaman, and you're the most powerful man, or one of the most powerful men in Syria, and this one man of Israel doesn't even come to his door, how dis disrespected would you feel? That I've got all this power, I've got the power to come into Israel and, and wreak havoc. And yet this man won't even come to his door to answer me. Yet this man has to send a servant to answer me. So we can get an idea of, of maybe the feeling that Naaman has. But on top of this disrespect, what Naaman's told to do isn't what he's expecting to do. What he's told to do, he, he th thinks is so simple, so beneath him, that he doesn't want to do it. Because what he's to do, told to do is to, to go bathe in the Jordan River seven times. Just go down to that river, bathe in there seven times, and you'll be fine. The idea here is something so simple that, that we can understand Naaman's outcry. That well, Couldn't I have done this in Damascus? Couldn't I have done this in the rivers of my land? Because the idea of bathing is something every day that we understand. Something that is, is simple to us. And we can also see that what Naaman expected, he didn't get. Look with me at verse 11. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hands over the place and cure the leper. Naaman expected this big show. He expected Elisha to come out, wave his hands over him, and boom, Naaman's healed. But that's not how it happens. You see, Naaman doesn't get what he's expecting. This is like, like I mentioned before, going on a vacation. If we're going on a vacation and we see, or we're going to see a, a majestic waterfall, something so fantastic that everyone's told us everything about it, and we get there and this waterfall is no more than just a trickle of water, isn't that disappointing? Or if we're reading a book, that book that everyone has so told us about that it's, it's wonderful, it's amazing, you have to read it, and it's been good for a while, and then you get to the, the climax of the story and it disappoints you so much that you really don't want to read it, that's what this is like. That you, you go all this way, you take all the steps to get there. And then when you're there, it's not what you expect. It's not what you want. And so it disappoints you. Naaman reacts to this point in the story more than any other point at all. 
He doesn't react to Jehoram crying out for the hopelessness. He doesn't react to the information coming from the little slave girl. He reacts to his own expectations not being met. But why do we get this reaction? Why do we get this idea from Naaman that he, he can't do this? He doesn't want to do this. It's because Naaman is not told simply just to bathe. Naaman's, what Naaman's told to do is to surrender to God's will. He's told to obey what God wants him to do rather than he want, what he wants to do. In verse 13, the ESV gives us an interesting translation. I don't think it's the best translation for us. In the New King James Version, it reads, And his servants, Naaman's servants, came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, Wash and be clean. The servants point out to Naaman what, he, what he's saying he's not going to do. They're saying, you know, Naaman, if, if Elisha had told you to go do something vastly greater to you, go capture a city, go defeat the enemies of Israel, wouldn't you have done that to cure your leprosy? So if you wouldn't have done that, then why won't you just go bathe seven times? Why won't you just go down to the Jordan and clean yourself? Naaman didn't feel that this was up to his level. His pride stopped him from going to bathe in the Jordan. He was held back from his healing, what he was seeking for, because he was too prideful in himself. He was too prideful in what he wanted done rather than what God wanted done. Look with me in verse 14. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. So we see the servant's words had an impact in Naaman. He then goes down to Jordan, and he cleanses himself seven times. And what did you know it? He's healed immediately. There's, there's no anything in between. After he finishes his seventh cleaning, he's healed. He's healed because he surrendered his will to God's. He surrendered what he wanted to do to what God wanted him to do. Likewise, our own conversion, our own lives as Christians require us to surrender to what God wants us to do. It requires us to surrender our will and say, you know what, I'm going to do God's will instead. I'm going to do what God wants me to do rather than what I want to do. Surrendering our will to God requires us to admit that we can't do anything for our salvation, but that God can. Surrendering our will means we admit that we need God's help. And we often have the same problem that Naaman has. I often have the same problem that Naaman has. Because it's not what I want to do. It's not what I expect that I have to do. In high school, I had a, a very big problem with my mouth. I didn't care what words I used, who I used them toward, or how I acted or said toward, to anyone. In fact, I just I did whatever I wanted. I said whatever I wanted. And then when I became a Christian, well, I can't use that language anymore. I can't say what I used to say anymore because that's not what God expects of me. I had to change. I had to change the way I, I spoke because God expected me, God expected better of me. If someone enjoys a lifestyle of, of fornication or adultery, 
Well, if they're presented with what the Bible says on that subject, if they're, if they're shown that, that what fornication and adultery is and it's a sin, well, they have a choice there. They have a choice to, to look at what God wants of them, to see what God expects and say, you know what? I'm going to do what God expects of me to do. Or they can look at it and say, you know what? That's not what I want to do. I'm going to go do what I want to do. So thanks, but no thanks. We have a choice to make in our conversion. And that choice is surrendering to God's will over ourselves. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, we have a a similar story to Naaman's story. Matthew 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him, saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do, you, do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This is the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man who comes to Jesus and asks for what he has to do to be saved. And so he asks what he has to do, and Jesus says, well, just obey the commandments. No murder, no adultery, no stealing, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. And in my mind, I can imagine the rich young ruler going, yeah, yeah, done that, did that too. And he's feeling pretty good about himself. You know, I've checked all these boxes, so I should be good for salvation. But he's looking for more. He wants to know what else he can do. And that's where the problem comes. Christ says, well, sell your stuff. Give to the poor and, then, and follow me. Basically, sell everything you have and put your trust in my care and what I will do for you. And this rich young ruler hears this and he's disappointed. He doesn't want to give up his wealth. He doesn't want to give up what he's amassed over time. And so he walks away. He walks away because he doesn't surrender to what God wants him to surrender to. The crux of our conversion, of anyone's conversion, is personal change. It's the surrendering of my pride to God's will. Conversion requires our complete surrender in God's will. Then and only then will we be healed from our disease of sin. Once we surrender, then we'll be healed. Finally, conversion requires commitment. Let's look back at Naaman's story. Back in 2 Kings chapter 5, and we'll pick up in verse 15. Then he, Naaman, returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from your servant. But he, Elisha, said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. And this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. 
When my master goes into the house of Rimon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Rimon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he said to him, go in peace. Conversion requires commitment. Naaman's conversion required commitment. You see, Naaman returns to Elisha and he says, you've healed me, you've, you've given me my life back. Let me reward you with all this fortune. Let me give you all the reward that I brought. And Elisha says, no, I'm not going to take that. In fact, he is so adamant about not taking it that he swears to God that he won't take it. And so Naaman, seeing this refusal, seeing this determination by Elisha, understands. And then he asks Naaman, or Elisha of two things. The first thing he asks in verse 17 is, is something that seems a little simple to me, a little simple to maybe all of us. He asks for two loads of dirt to bring home with him. I don't know about you, but if I was just healed of leprosy, if I was just healed of, of some disease that has been ruining my life for a while, I don't know if the first thing I would ask for would be dirt. But we see that, that Naaman does this, and, and I think there's a very specific reason to why he does this. You see, Naaman probably understood or, or had heard about how the Israelites believed that their land was given to them by God. And once he was changed, once he had surrendered to God's will and, and converted to obeying him for the rest of his life, well, he probably viewed this land as holy as well. And so he wanted to bring home with him part of this holy land. He wanted to bring home something that he could worship on and feel like he was worshiping on holy land to God. Naaman is committing himself to future worship of God. He's looking forward to his future life. He's saying, well, now that I've changed, I have to do something. I have to commit to do something for God. Secondly, Naaman asks for Elisha's intercession. In verse 18, we can see that because of Naaman's status, he was probably going to be required to go help his king worship. He was going to be required to help his king lean down for his bowing. And Naaman's, Naaman understands this. Again, he looks to his future and commits to God and says, Elisha, if, if you can, will you pray for me that I be forgiven for helping my master worship? Will you pray for me so that this thing that I have to do doesn't stop me from being healed? Naaman is committing his future to God. And preparing for his life. And in verse 19, we get the response of Elisha to, to go in peace. This response is the idea of, well, be comforted knowing that this will be done. Be comforted knowing that when you do this, uh, I will pray for you. I will intercede for this, this, this action that you may be having to take. But by committing to God, Naaman shows us that conversion is a continual effect. Naaman shows us that conversion requires commitment. Our conversion is not complete simply because we decide to surrender. We can sit there and say, yes, I am going to do God's will today. But if we don't commit to it, well, then we're going to have to make that decision each day. We're going to have to sit there and say, well, maybe I'll surrender, maybe not. It depends on what goes on. Our conversion requires us to committing to that surrender day in and day out. If we have a true change of heart, much like Naaman's, then we'll be willing to continue to commit to humbling ourselves before God, to humble ourselves before God's will. 
It means that we're willing to repent of our old selves and put on a new self. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 20. Actually, we'll start in verse 17. Now this I say in testifying the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their hearts. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned in Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth to Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. If we're to commit to God, then we have to surrender our will to his and we have to change our lifestyle. We can no longer do the things we used to do before we committed to God, before we became Christians. We can't live a sinful lifestyle if we decide to live as a Christian. If we put on Christ, that means we're putting on holiness and righteousness and determining in ourselves to live as He would want us to live and putting His will above our own. Conversion requires us to commit to a change, to commit to surrendering to God's will. Because our walk as Christians is never finished. What we do as Christians is never done. There's always more to be done. Naaman's story shows us conversion. It shows us the requirements of conversion. It shows us that conversion requires seeking. It shows us that conversion requires surrender. And finally, it shows us that conversion requires commitment. Conversion is crucial in all of our lives because we're never done with it. In any aspect, we're never done committing. We're never done helping others to see why we changed. And so I hope that today that this lesson of Naaman and the requirements of conversion was helpful to you. At this time, we'll be dismissed for our classes.